The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Rarely is the question asked, is our children learning? As yesterday's positive report card shows, children do learn when standards are high and results are measured. Children do learn. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the history of... Oh, excuse me. Oh, there's someone knocking at the studio door. Hello? Hello, I'm Oliver Twist. Oliver! Mogul, please, sir. <laughs> That's all I'm asking for. A little and early, Oliver. And out the Aren't you? here at the workhouse. Why, it's that insufferable drudge, Mr. Jack Wilson. Oh, Oliver. Ah, uh, I guess he ain't a bad sort when he's not jawing my ear off about some chap named Dickens. I couldn't care less about meeting some old writer fellow, but I would like some more gruel. Well, I think we can get you some. Won't you shillings at Mr Wilson so he can spare another spoonful of slop for me and the other lads? We'll consider ourselves grateful. Oh boy, Oliver's back. How wonderful. And you know why he's here? Because this episode is about children. In particular... High school children, high school young adults, readers, students of literature, and people who wonder, just why on earth should we even bother with these books? We'll hear from a classroom full of children, and we'll give some answers on today's episode. But first, let me nod to Oliver. If you'd like to support the show, please head on over to patreon.com literature, where you can sign up for a small monthly contribution. Or if you'd rather go to historyofliterature.com slash shop, you can make a one-time contribution there. In either case, you'd be doing us a great favor for which we would be eternally grateful. Buy us a beer, buy us a coffee, buy us a sparkling water, whatever your beverage is. We don't care. We'll drink it all (laughs) in the form of cold hard cash. Actually, you're paying with a credit card or a PayPal account. This week, we're thanking new Patreon Corey, who likes to listen to the show while she's walking her dog and would like the show to continue. Corey, thank you very much. Corey's real name is Cordelia. How wonderful is that? <laughs> Regan and Goneril, you can go jump in the Lake District. We don't want your money. Thank you, Cordelia, for giving us more than nothing. Our gratitude and our kingdom shall be yours. Ophelia, we're looking at you next. Okay, let's get started, folks. You heard the former president at the start of the show. Rarely is the question asked, is our children learning? What a plaintive, heartfelt cry, an Old Testament cry, someone in the New Yorker put it. Is our children learning? Is they? Because children's do better when they're measured. (laughs) That's enough of that. We're going to check in with some young people today. We're going to see if the kids are all right. We have questions from actual literature students and my answers today on the History of Literature. Okay. Here we go. Let's get started. I can't wait to get going with these questions. These come from a school. You may recall this teacher, our teacher in New Mexico, who teaches at a school that her state 
as designated as failing. That's in quotes. Well, that's not easy. Not an easy job to teach there or to learn there. Is there room for literature there? How so? How does that, where, where does literature find its spot? You know, conditions like that. We're going to hear from them, from the students in a moment. They submitted questions for me to answer. But first, we have a new segment here called Jack Wilson Autocorrects the News. You're welcome. That's what we're working on the title. Gar, is that really the title? Looks like a typo. Is that okay? Jack Wilson autocorrects the news. You're welcome. Jack Wilson autocorrects the news. You're welcome. Okay, I guess we have some. Okay. First up is the tweet sent out by former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, who sent his congratulations to departing Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, writing, quote, Secretary Tillerson is a true patriot that has severed our nation well. End quote. Severed! What an unfortunate typographical error. Mr. Spicer, of course, meant to write, quote, Secretary Tillerson is a true patriot who has severed our nation well. Next. Okay, I didn't know I was supposed to wait for that. <laughs> we should have more rehearsal. Item number two. Former Florida State Representative Elizabeth Porter, who responded to the high school activists from Parkland by saying the following. We've been told that we need to listen to the children. I do what the children ask. Are there any children on this floor? Are there any children making laws? Do we allow the children to tell us that we should pass a law that says no homework? Or you finish high school at the age of 12 just because they want it so? No. The adults make the laws because we have the age, we have the wisdom, and we have the experience. Mm, compelling argument. But wait, Gar, can we, can we hear just the, the snippet of that? The adults make the laws because we have the age, we have the wisdom, and we have the experience. Mm, that's what I thought I heard the first time. We have the age, we have the wisdom, we have the experience. Obviously. What she meant to say was, we had the age, we has the wisdom, we had have the experience. I actually had the good fortune to catch Representative Porter in an exchange. I'll read the transcript from that for you now. Jack Wilson, Representative Porter, thank you for taking the time to respond to my questions today. Representative Porter, thanks you, Jack. It's my pleasures. Wilson, Representative Porter, do adults has the wisdom? Porter, yes. We lived a long time. Now we has the wisdom. Wilson, do children has the wisdom? Porter, no, unfortunately, kids does not has the wisdom. Wilson, will children's ever has the wisdom? Porter, time will tells, Jack. Times will tell. Wilson, Representative Porter, thanks you for speaking with me today's. Porter, you is very welcome, Jack. It were my pleasures. That's Florida State Representative Elizabeth Porter clarifying her remarks. Jack Wilson, autocorrect the news. In other news, 
The poet Stephen Vincent Benet once said, quote, We thought because we had the power. We had wisdom. End quote. That's from his 1935 work, Litany for Dictatorships. Very interesting. We thought because we had power, we had wisdom. Now, let's hear from some children. Frankly, although I appreciate Representative Porter's interview responses, I actually was not persuaded by her eloquent appeal. I think children are very smart and very wise. I think we need to listen to them, and I think our attempts to explain things to them can be very revealing about us. We'll hear their questions after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, this is going to be fun, but it's also a real challenge. I don't think I've ever been as nervous to get these answers right. These these answers are in response to a high school teacher in New Mexico, Ms. Anne-Marie Sheehan, who teaches literature to 10th grade students at Highland High School, which New Mexico has labeled a, quote, failing school, end quote. From the outside, from a, sorry, a statistical perspective, people point to the low test scores, the low graduation rates, the news accounts of gang-related incidents, the high dropout rate, the diverse student populations, the high number of refugee students, and the, quote, minimally effective teachers, end quote. Anne-Marie, or maybe I should call her Ms. Sheehan, has struggled with the narratives about her school and her students. Many of her acquaintances suggest that she's wasting her time trying to teach literature to, quote, those students, Ms. Sheehan doesn't see what they see from the outside. Instead, she sees students working until 2 in the morning to try to help their parents pay bills and yet still showing up at 7.30 every day to further their education. She sees teachers who are deeply committed to their students and to helping them learn that being intelligent requires the empathy, creativity, and resilience that cannot be shown by a standardized test score. 
Ms. Sheehan believes that literature matters and she wants to make sure her students have that exposure to it, just as any students at any school in the country would. Let me pause there. Are you on Ms. Sheehan's side yet? I am. We should try to help her if we can, right? And yet, and yet, these are 10th grade students who are, I'm sure, inclined to be cynical about everything, including Shakespeare and Dante. That's probably universal for that age. And if you're working to pay bills and then showing up for school, you're even more cynical. And soon these students might be faced with an even tougher choice. Should I pay for college? And if I do, is it worthwhile to take literature courses? Or this choice, my free time is limited. Should I read books? Great books? What's in it for me? Those are all great questions. I think literature owes it to them to give them answers. And since I'm running a podcast called The History of Literature, I am going to step up and do my best to make the case for literature. And so I asked Ms. Sheehan to ask her students what's most on their minds when it comes to literature. I didn't want to make up the questions. I wanted to hear the questions that they were most passionate about. And here's what they said. Question number one. Do you think reading novels in school is as important as learning how to write? (laughs) Right from the start. Here we go. That's a great question. Let me start by saying that I'm someone who once upon a time used to read grammar books on my own because it irritated me that I didn't know the rules of grammar. I would say (laughs) I wanted to know. I didn't want to be in the dark. So... Far be it from me to say that learning how to write is not important. It's learning how to write well is hugely important, extremely important. Understanding the basics of grammar and spelling and all the nuts and bolts, being able to proofread your own work, compose a basic email without errors. Those things are all very, very important as even the most basic of life skills. I'm not going to pretend they're not. I've been on several hiring committees and it's amazing how many skilled people and resumes there are out there, you might be competing with hundreds of others for one job. And everyone looks great on paper. So what does the hiring committee do? If there are typos in the cover letter, we set it aside. We think other people did it without typos. We have so many people here to pick from. Other people showed they took the care. It's unfortunate, but that's how it works sometimes. So writing, I would say, is very, very important. But when we talk about reading novels, we can say that that is part of learning how to write. It's not either or. Most people don't read grammar books. Most people don't learn rules and don't apply the rules to their writing anyway. The author Joan Didion once said, quote, Grammar is an instrument I play by ear. End quote. She followed her instincts. In other words, she didn't know the rules, but she knew when she was breaking them because she had developed her instincts through reading, through reading great books. Great authors have a command of language, a voice, a musicality, a fluidity to their prose that is very important to help you learn how to write and not sound like a robot. And I'll say that reading novels gives you other experiences too, like intelligence and empathy. 
and being able to analyze things and being able to participate in a kind of shared cultural experience, all that is valuable. But I'm sure we'll get into that in the next 11 questions. Question number two, who should get to decide what counts as good literature? Good is in quotes. This one. Oh boy, this one really gets me. Isn't the answer the host of the History of Literature podcast? Obviously. <laughs> I decide. I'm just kidding, of course. I didn't want to say everyone's opinion is equal, exactly. I think of the site, the website Rotten Tomatoes, the way it aggregates movie reviews. Some critics are top critics, some are not, but they all go into a formula and produce an average. That's kind of how I view deciding what counts as good literature, too. There are some flaws. We we listen to some top critics and a lot of other critics. It all goes into a mix, and we end up with something like a score. Some the cream kind of rises to the top. I think of I think of it as democracy in action, a great democratization of literature. Now I have a couple of podcast episodes where Mike and I railed against the list that was put out by the College Board, the required reading list by the College Board. I don't think they're doing a very good job of selecting good or relevant literature, but their list counts for something. The Nobel Prize Committee has some huge whiffs, too, but their list counts. Amazon reviewers, what a crazy bunch that is, but I read them all the time, take their opinions into consideration. That's the thing. Who decides? We do. We, the people, readers who are engaged, readers who care. We recommend, we rate, we review, we buy, we pick up some books. We throw others against the wall. We urge some books on others. We throw some out the window. And hopefully, if readers are passionate enough and if they have the right mindset when they're reading, what do I mean by right mindset? Here's the wrong mindset. My grandfather, late in his life, used to read a lot of romance novels. And my sister saw him one day and asked him about it. If he liked the book he was reading, if it was a good book. And he just pointed at my grandmother and said, well, she goes to the library. I just read what she brings home. And my sister said, well, how's the story? You like the story? I, I don't know what the story is. Couldn't really say. Couldn't recall anything about the book he was reading. Characters, the plot, nothing. And then he said, at my age, you don't care. You're just killing time. <laughs> Well, my sister went into went into action into her Lisa Simpson mode and we turned him around. But the point I'm making is that that kind of a reader shouldn't be choosing. The ones who aren't engaged in what they're reading shouldn't be part of this democratization. It should be people who love books and who say, you know what, there's a lot to get out of this one and not as much to get out of that one. That's my dream. The choice of what is good literature isn't made by some guru or some committee, but it comes out of a mass of people reading, thinking, discussing, debating, advocating, agitating, saying, why so many dead white males? Look at the world that's out there. Why not this book from India? Why not this author? 
from Alaska. Here's a play written last year that's as moving as anything written 100 years ago. Maybe more moving, more relevant. Here's an excellent author from Iceland or South America or right here in D.C. or right there in New Mexico. Let's explore that. And we read what we can. We all try to expand. We share our ideas. And the literary cream rises to the top. Question number three. What do you think is better, Jack? Student-selected individual reading or class reading of one book? Oh, I love this because it seems to have a position. The person is either thinking like a teacher or prefers one or the other. I'm guessing they prefer student-selected individual reading. Here's what I think. You can benefit from both. Students selecting their own books to read is huge, hugely important. There's just no way to pick a book that will resonate with everyone. People are too different. So students need to have the freedom to explore, to follow their passions. And maybe we can give them some ideas based on their personal preferences. One of my greatest successes when I was a teacher was when I had two elementary school students, Daylin and Netsai, one from Mexico, one from Kenya. And they were pals because they were paired together in this ESL classroom. And I became their pal because the three of us met three times a week to go over their homework. And we talked and we laughed and they hated to read because English was their second language and it felt hard. But they had to read a book for an assignment. So I took them to the library, went with them, and the whole time, the whole way to the library, Daylin talked about her dog, how much she loved her dog, how much she hated being in school without her dog, how she loved the weekends because she could play with her dog, and so on. And by the time we got to the library, I knew what book I would recommend, and I said to the librarian, do you have Where the Red Fern Grows? Which is all about a kid and his dogs. It wasn't one of my favorites, but I guessed that she would like it. And she did. She read it in a weekend. Years later, she wrote me a letter and told me that the book had changed her life, had opened her up, had opened her to the idea of books and also the idea that she could do it, that she could accomplish things that she hadn't thought she could accomplish. She just needed to find her passion and follow it. You have to follow those passions to get more out of literature. On the other hand, it's great to have a communal experience of reading, too. There's nothing like going to a classroom and everyone's talking about the same ideas because you all have that in common to talk about. And when it's literature, you can engage with it. You can all engage with it and criticize it and argue for it and against it and really think, what does this mean? How does this affect me? Does it move me? That's the key. Read with that in mind. I know there are probably some students in the class who are very good at reading. And there are others who sit there thinking, well, why should I answer when so-and-so always has the right answer? So-and-so always knows what the teacher wants to hear. That's not the way to read literature. That's not the way to think about literature. You need to read and think, what does this mean? How am I moved by this? Am I? And if I'm not, why not? And if I am, how so? And then you hear the reactions of others 
then you can engage with them, understand them, and understand yourself. If you're taking the book seriously, and you should be, you'll gain from those conversations because what you're really doing is taking yourself seriously. Question number four. What five books do you think every high school student should read? Hmm. This is such a great question. I could follow the last answer and say five books you're passionate about, but I think that's kind of a cop-out. Let's say that first of all, every high school student who has to read five books should read five books they're passionate about, but I know what you're talking about here. A recommended reading list. So let's talk about the books that are most often recommended or required. Why should you read those? Why are those culturally relevant? I'm talking about books like Beloved, which is probably the most required book in college anyway. It's good to be aware of it. That helps. It's a great book. Don't get me wrong. The Great Gatsby. Everyone cites this for lessons about the American dream. Catcher in the Rye. It's the quintessential book about high school for high school students. I think it helps to have some exposure to those, to read Shakespeare, probably Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet, just so you know what's going on in there, so you know what Shakespeare is like. Other common required reading books include To Kill a Mockingbird, Animal Farm, Scarlet Letter. Those are great books. Sure, why not? There are another 20 or so I could name Of Mice and Men, The Odyssey, The Grapes of Wrath, The Inferno, The House on Mango Street, Fahrenheit 451, 1984, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Those are on all kinds of high school reading lists. You can sense, perhaps, that I'm a little ambivalent about making this list. What else would be on there? Pride and Prejudice, or something more modern like Juno Diaz's book, Drown, Maya Angelou, Huck Finn. Let me just say this. Every list of five books that your high school teachers or the school board will come up with is probably okay. And they are probably also all terrible. (laughs) No list of five books could begin to cover everything. They'll all be lacking something important. I've mentioned 20. I still haven't mentioned Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Ernest Hemingway or Willa Cather or Pablo Neruda. You could you could always find gaps in any list of five, but here's the thing. It's okay to hate the books you're required to read. That prepares you for society as well. But at least have a smart opinion about it. Here's what's bad. Here's, here's the bad way to think about a book. To say, well, we had to read Catcher in the Rye in school and I hated it. Well, why did you hate it? I don't know. We had to read it. I was bored. You see that on Amazon sometimes. One star. And to read this for a class. I was bored. Period. Here's what's better. You know what? I hated Catcher in the Rye. Well, why did you hate it? 
Well, I thought Holden, the narrator, seemed spoiled, and I got tired of his voice. I thought the author wanted me to like him more than I actually did. I couldn't really relate to the problems of a kid in a prep school in New York. I know that it's supposed to be a universal experience, and that it's about the death of his brother. I heard the teacher say that it was actually about the war. But you know what? That didn't resonate with me. Because I was a a teenager when I read it, and I didn't find his experience to be anything close to what I was dealing with. You see the difference there? Books are only as good as you make them. They're there for you. But when you say, eh, who cares? I hated it. What you're really saying is, eh, I don't care about my brain or myself. I'd rather just tune out and say that something's boring. I can't come up with anything better than that. You need better opinions. Find your passion. Here are some other things you might try if you're trying to find your passion. You could read an anthology like the Best American Short Stories for that year. That'll help you identify some authors whose stories you like best, and then you can follow those, trace them back. Or you can find other lists online. Grant comes out with a list of the best writers under the age of 40. Now and then, that might be a place. You could look for a novel or a book of short stories or a book of poetry written by someone even younger, someone in their 20s. Find someone who looks like you, your race, your gender, your background. You could read that. Then you could look for someone in their 20s who doesn't look like you. Someone from a completely different background. Here's another suggestion. Find someone important to you. A parent, an uncle, a teacher. Someone you respect. Someone you love. Ask them if there's ever been a novel that they loved. Then read that with an open mind. See if you can find what you can learn about the person who recommended it. See if it strikes you the same way. Talk to them about it. Here's something else I like. Find the number one New York Times bestseller for fiction the week that you were born. You can find this online. Read that. See what the world was like when you started out. See what they were thinking about. And you can see where it's come since then. Lastly, give yourself a project to read a book from every continent. Kujiwati Ango from Africa, Haruki Murakami from Asia, and so on. Find your way around the world. Reading great books. Number five. What books do you suggest for students who don't like to read? (laughs) I love this question too. I spent two years reading nothing but sports books and sports magazines. That's all I read. I liked to read. I guess I liked sports. I didn't know what exactly I was doing. Then a math teacher shook me out of it by recommending that I read Descartes. There was no real reason for it other than I told him I liked geometrical proofs. I liked that idea. I liked the clarity of it. And I wished I could apply it to more things in life. I wish I could take the basic elements, the things that were true, and build on that and find more true things. And he said, well, that's what Descartes did. 
and he ended up thinking that he had proved the existence of God, and I was hooked. I raced to the library, ignored the librarian who was telling me that the latest sports biography had come in. She had assumed that's what I was looking for, and I said, where's Descartes? <laughs> he also, that teacher gave me a list of historical fiction and other things that he liked reading, and I, I read those. I enjoyed them too, but I moved on. The spell of sports and sports only had been broken. Now I was hungry for everything that life and literature had to offer. So that's one suggestion. Ask people around you. Ask the people you admire. I would also look for subject matter you like. Science fiction, fantasy fiction, mysteries. You can find well-written mysteries with just about any kind of a hero, a cop or a bad guy a female bounty hunter, a cat lover, a yoga instructor, a teacher, whatever you think you might identify with, you can find mysteries. That's one way to find books that you're interested in reading. Here are some good authors whose books are pretty readable. J.K. Rowling, Paul Auster, Sarah Grun, Alice Siebold, Lori Moore, Sandra Cisneros, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Isabel Allende, Ernest Hemingway, Martin Amos, Colson Whitehead, Edwidge Danticat, Ronica Dar, David Sedaris, Jumpa Lahiri, Zadie Smith, Juno Diaz, Vu Tran, friend of the show, Julia Alvarez, Amy Tan, Gish Jen, Margot Livesey, friend of the show, Christina Garcia, George Saunders, Jennifer Egan, Stephen King, Haruki Murakami, James McBride, Shawnee Yang Ryan, friend of the show, Charles Baxter, friend of the show, Nick Hornby. A lot of authors out there whose prose is very readable. It's not all Shakespeare. It's not all Chaucer. You can find contemporary literature where the prose goes down very easy. And don't forget short books, short stories, poetry, some great books that are very uh, very rewarding that can be read in short bursts. Read anthologies or books about books to give you something to think about. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with the second half of our list after this. Okay, let's get right to question number six. Number six, do you think technology is the reason why people don't read books as much? Yes, I do. In some ways, I started the podcast because I wasn't sure we needed literature as much anymore. I used to keep books around just so I could look something up, some historical fact or some reference. Now we have Google. And I used to read books because I knew nothing about what life was like in say, Indonesia. Now I can find out by visiting someone's blog. If I want to know what it's like to be a transgendered person living in Toronto or Iran, I can probably find that out on the internet. I can probably read a blog that gives me the day-to-day -day activity and thoughts and dreams and hopes and fears of that person. 
It's all there. Do I need novels anymore to tell me? In the old days, I would read a book to make me cry or to lift my spirits, and now I can watch a baby hugging a puppy or a monkey protecting a baby goat from a tiger or something. I can get an emotional pick-me-up in six easy seconds anytime I want. Here's the other thing. The internet has trained us all to be participants. My friend complained the other day that her daughter doesn't like to watch movies. We speculated that it's because with Minecraft and comment boards and Twitter and Facebook, all the experience is participatory. It's not easy to just let something talk at you for two hours if you're used to talking back. But that's not to say that it's not worth doing to give yourself the experience of letting something talk at you, something that you're engaging with in your mind and you're not just giving your quick take on it. Books, extended fictional stories can still provide an emotional experience that you might not get from roaming around the internet, clicking here and there, watching 30-second videos. I don't know that those can stretch you out in the same way that a book can. Question number seven. Does listening to an audiobook still count as reading? Yes. Yes. We had a great guest on the show, Terry Hong, our conversation about North Korea. Terry Hong writes so many book reviews, it's amazing. Seems like she writes dozens of book reviews a month. How does she read so many books? It turns out that she also trains for extreme marathons, like 100-mile runs, things like that. How does, how does she do it? She listens to audiobooks while she runs. She gets a lot out of listening to those books while she's in that state of mind, concentrating, feeling her body, working. For me, it's long car trips, maybe sometimes on the exercise bike. Those are good places, good ways to take in fiction. Some of the readers of audiobooks are fantastic. That's another skill. That's another art. It's nice to be part of that, but depends on how you're listening. If you're listening while you're doing something else that's taking up some of your attention, if you're I don't know, playing video games, or if you're only half listening, that might not count. Number eight, what if you want to read, but you can't focus for more than five minutes? <laughs> I love this too. First, control your environment. Find a quiet space. Get in the mindset that you're going to treat yourself with an experience that this is the most important thing you can do that you will feel good at the end of it, just as you would at the end of a good workout. Train yourself to read for longer and longer stretches, 10 minutes at a time. Reward yourself with a, a drink of water, a cup of tea. Do a quick jog around the house. Then go 20 minutes. Try that. Get yourself in the, in the mindset that this works, that this will work, that you can do it. And if this isn't required reading, try a shorter work. I talked about the pleasures of short books earlier. There's some classic short stories 
Those can give you plenty to think about, and they can train your mind how to concentrate on longer works. There are authors like Borges who pack a whole novel's worth of ideas into a few pages. Chekhov, Borges, Cisneros, Grace Paley, Juno Diaz. Read them, wrestle with the ideas, think about it, argue with it. Question number nine. Do you think graphic novels count as literature? What about manga? Yes, I do. 100%. There are some great ones, too. Great graphic novels. I don't read too many, so I'm not a great recommender of them. But if you Google literary graphic novels or literary manga, you'll find them. Be careful about what you're reading. Take agency over what you're putting in your mind. We do this with food, right? You know that Doritos are a guilty pleasure and then a good sandwich or bowl of soup or salad or vegetables. Those are all healthy for you. Superfood like broccoli, stuff like that, you know that's better for you in the long run. Your brain is like that too. If you like graphic novels, read them by all means. But seek out the good ones once in a while. Give yourself that nutrition. Find the ones that will engage your brain and your emotions. Find the ones that resonate the most, that are the most meaningful. Now, I'm going to combine the next two questions. Number 10, do you think books will always exist? And number 11, do you think books will still be a part of school in 100 years? No, I don't. I think books as we know them today will eventually be a curiosity, like a horse-drawn carriage or a telegram. Eventually, it's bound to happen. Even though the technology of a book, of paper inside of covers, it's so good, it's a little hard to beat the experience of reading a book, an actual paper book. But the distribution and storage of an ebook is so superior. How many cameras with film were sold last year? How many, how many digital cameras even now that we have phones? How many personal letters did you send last year? There may be a role for physical books, for picture books, kids' books, so on. But I think in a hundred years, we probably won't have too many paper books around anymore. But I do think books in the broader sense, e-books, for example... I think they'll last forever. I think they will be a part of school. There will always be a role for an extended narrative for fiction and nonfiction. And most of all, for stories. We live in stories. Stories are hugely important. Last question. Number 12. Why do teachers make us read books they like? <laughs> And our teacher, Ms. Sheehan, adds in parentheses, ha ha, I love this one. <laughs> so do I. Now, here's my rant. I'm going to stand up for teachers a little bit here. It is so hard to be a teacher. When I taught at the university, I had two classes. 
which I thought would be great. It was one. It was the same class taught twice, so I had one preparation and to teach two courses, and it was awful. I was so bored teaching the second one. The first one would come in, I'd be all excited, full of energy. I'd hear what they have to say. Second class would troop in, and I'd think, why do I have to do this again? Why? And high school teachers might have four or five of the same class every day. And then this was my experience. The semester was over, and the next semester, I taught the exact same course. And I think this will be great because I've already done the prep. Save myself some time. And yet, it was awful. I resented the students. I would think, didn't we just learn all this? <laughs> How can you not know? I've told you this twice. Just last year. Of course, that wasn't fair. It wasn't fair at all. Of course, I, I was progressing, but the students weren't. It wasn't fair for me to resent them for this. I realized... Yes, the students progressed. They got to move on, but I was stuck in place. Now, imagine if, imagine all this if you're teaching a book you didn't like. Imagine if you had to drag your carcass out of bed every day and go and teach a book you didn't like. You went to college for this. You're trained as a teacher. And here you are talking about a book that you don't like over and over and trying to get students to be interested in it. Because that's what motivates teachers, just like it motivates podcasters. Passion. You have to have passion. There are so many other ways to spend your time. It's such an effort to bring that enthusiasm every day. You have to love your students. You have to love the experience of standing in front of a class, of being on that stage. But you also have to love your subject. Otherwise, you will burn out very quickly. My favorite part of every semester was writing the syllabus. That was when I felt the most engaged. I could put it together. I could find great things to put on the list. I could explore things I wanted to explore. I would be damned if I would put on that syllabus something that I thought I wouldn't like. Why would I want to spend 20 hours preparing and how many hours teaching and how many hours grading papers written about something I didn't even like? <laughs> Why would I want to swim up that stream? I have kids myself. And like most parents, when your kids are young and cute and precious, they are all yours. When they're two years old, they're like little human pets. Everything they have, everything they do is in response to the parent. And you start thinking, how can I ever give this up? I'm like a god. <laughs> I call all the shots. I'm in charge of everything. And no one else loves this little one like I do. So why would I share this precious gift with anyone else? Nobody's going to like this kid as much as I do. No one's going to care as much about how this kid grows, this kid's education. Maybe I should homeschool him or her. And that's tempting. Because you think, I'll give him individual attention. I'll control who he sees, avoid any 
disastrous encounters with bad classmates or bad teachers. But then I think about all the teachers that I had. Most I liked, some I hated, some I loved, but they were all different from my parents. My parents gave me what parents give, but each teacher gave me something different too. I had a fifth grade teacher who loved science. He was crazy about science projects. That's not my thing. Science wasn't my thing then either. I had a dull time in that class with all that science, except looking back, I got to know how a grown-up who loved science so much that he built a remote control for his television set before anyone else had one. He built his own. <laughs> he cooked his lunch in a solar oven. That's how into science he was. His enthusiasm was contagious. I learned from that. And I learned something about myself. I learned from my Spanish teacher who was from Spain and hated teaching. I learned from my civics teacher who hated the government, but who loved teaching about the government. I learned from all of them something a little different. And if I could do it all over again, I would seize that opportunity more than I did. I'd say, hey, here I am. I'm with this guy who loves science for a year. I'm going to use these hours to learn what it's like to love science. At least I can know that, even if I don't like science myself. I'll see what it's like to be a person who loves science. I'm going to use the time better. Here's a teacher who's passionate for algebra. I'm going to see how she thinks. I'll learn the subject, but I also want to know what it's like to be passionate about algebra. I heard the comedian Jerry Seinfeld on a show recently talking about how he tried riding a jet ski. And the person he was talking to said, I can't picture you enjoying that. And Seinfeld said, oh, I didn't think I'd enjoy it. I just like checking out the things that other people like to see what's in it for them, to see what they're getting out of it, and to see what I can learn about that. That's a good way to think about your teachers, too. They're there for you. They're giving you their time. They've all gotten to a certain place in their life. They've gone through many things. Maybe they're thriving. Maybe they're broken. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not suggesting they're all admirable. Maybe some aren't. But what do you do? With that opportunity, how do you decide to spend the time? You can check out. You can just listen to them drone on. You can slink down in your desk. Try to pull the move that one of my classmates did. Put headphones in and, and act like you're covering your ears to try to hide your headphones. Doesn't fool anybody. You can basically waste everyone's time. Or you can say, I'm not going to waste this time. I'm going to take everything I can from it. I'll learn what there is to learn here. And I'll learn it from this person. And I'll make this experience, this shared time together, as good as I can make it. Because I owe it to myself and the limited time I have on this planet to do that. And then go home and read more books and treat them the same way. Squeeze them for all they're worth. Enjoy yourselves and stretch yourselves. And then take a break 
and come back hungry for more. Okay, there we go. <laughs> That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to my heroes, the students in Ms. Sheehan's literature class, and of course, to Ms. Sheehan herself. Please keep us posted on how things are going. How about you, listeners? Do you have ideas, suggestions, thoughts for the young student? Let me know. What do you think I got right? What do you think I got wrong? Do you think our children is learning? You can send your stories to jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. What were you reading in 10th grade? Was it any good? How did your passion for literature arise? I'd love to hear from you. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.